From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. My guest today on The Surgery Set is Dr. Leslie Ashburn Nardo. She's an associate professor at the Applied Social and Organizational Psychology Department at the Purdue School of Science. Her professional interests involve diversity and intergroup relations, and one line of her research program focuses on stereotypes and prejudice, particularly their more subtle, often implicit forms. We talk about implications those biases have and the importance of confronting prejudice and discrimination in the surgical workplace. Doing so, or failing to do so, has huge effects on the health and well-being of surgeons, their families, and their patients. Totally fascinating stuff that gets at one of the biggest issues in the world of surgery and medicine today. Enjoy. Dr. Ashford Nardo, welcome to the surgery sets. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for making the trip to talk uh, about confronting prejudice and how we can engage and respond to uh, something that I think you know, we all see and some more than others um, in the work we do around you know, trying to take care of patients in a complicated system. Give us a quick introduction to, to your work and you know, tell us how you, you found yourself exploring this particular subset of your field. Because you're a psychologist, right? I am. I'm yeah. a social psychologist. How I started. Um, so I've always been interested in, in research regarding stereotyping and prejudice, and I always find interest in how I can apply our knowledge to different settings. Um, and so uh, perhaps it's a, a function of having grown up in the South and having seen uh, a lot of racially biased expressions happen in a variety of different contexts. Uh, but that was really the, the root of where I became interested in it. And uh, what we have learned about people's prejudices is that they're often expressed in ways that are unintentional. Um, a lot of times it's a social gaffe um, that's a function of people's implicit biases. Um, people may not even recognize always when they are saying something that is offensive. You know, mm -hmm. Sometimes we get pulled into conversations that are very joking and, uh, and then you know, something inappropriate comes out. And so how do we call people's attention to um, that inappropriate remark that has the great potential to hurt people? Uh, and so confrontation emerged as a way to, to do that, to call people's attention to what they've just said and to communicate uh, our displeasure with what was just said or done. And so confrontation, um, despite the, the language and the, the connotation around the word confrontation itself, can be uh, verbal or nonverbal. Uh, it doesn't have to be heated, although it can be, certainly. Um, and what we have found is that when people call us out on our biases, it instigates this self-regulation process where we reflect on our values, mm -hmm. whether those are our internal values that we have for ourselves or whether those are the, the norms in our environment. And in a workplace context, certainly we try to uphold norms of respect. And so when people um, engage in a prejudiced remark or an offensive remark or an act of incivility, then um, that is violating that norm. And so calling people's attention to that is something that we can do to change their behavior. And you describe uh, these incidents as as social emergencies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting to hear it framed that way because that idea gets the idea that these are not innocuous remarks, right? And and obviously, I think we all recognize that you know someone screaming at someone or like using real like aggressive behavior, like that really is like an immediate problem. But it's sure. even those smaller 
incidents, those not like obvious like blow-ups, microaggression. microaggressions, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. are are emergencies in the sense that they, they have a profound effect on the people who are sort of receiving that aggression. They do, yeah. in part because they often are blown off, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're experiencing a microaggression or an act of incivility, you know, here you are thinking, this is happening to me all the time, uh, because what we know about that literature is that these kinds of uh, behaviors, uncivil behaviors, tend to happen more to women and racial minorities than they happen to others. And so um, there is that element of bias. And so here you're carrying this around that you have these cumulative experiences with microaggressions. And we know from the literature that that takes a tremendous toll on people's psychological well-being, um, which can have an impact on their physical well-being as well. Um, and certainly it can undermine their ability to be fully present in their workplace. Yeah. And I mean, I think I come to these discussions, right, from a position in probably the single least affected group, right? Heterosexual, affluent, white, male. But my own experience is mostly around hierarchy, right? Which in right. surgery is a huge thing, Absolutely. right? Like, um, in many organizations. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're not alone. But I think, I mean, we have, a, we have a very strict ladder in academic medicine, right? And I remember, like, as an intern, there being a lot of prejudice against interns by senior residents. There's a measure of prejudice against, you know, assistant professors by full professors. I mean, you sort of, not to say that, like, woe is me, I have lived a very challenged life, you know, um, but... But in my own experience, you know, even that limited degree of sort of targeted, like being targeted because of who you are, or like because of the group that you are in um, and having assumptions made, it's, it's a profoundly unsettling experience. So when I think about, for instance, our residents, our residents of color, um, our female residents, right, who are always being talked about as like being a nurse, right? Mm -hmm. not that there's anything wrong with nursing, but like that's not what they are, right? right. And there are these assumptions made. Um, you know, and I know that our residents, um, and particularly, you know, some of our African-American residents, you know, have just been exposed to extraordinary prejudice, like even from patients, which then puts you in an incredible bind, right? Because you're here to take care of this person. Maybe they're impaired, their judgment is impaired, they're drunk, whatever. Maybe not. Um, maybe they're just, you know, feel well, for fearful. whatever reason, for, they're fearful. They're in, a, they're in a difficult situation. Like, how do you, like, so we, we basically take people... Um, you know, young trainees, and we, we put them in this sort of pressure cooker where they're under enormous pressure to take care of people who are themselves scared and under enormous pressure. Like, it seems like we, we create a perfect environment for, like, the worst possible behaviors, yes. right? <laughs> we do. Yeah, those are absolutely the kinds of situations when we are distracted, when we don't have full access to our cognitive resources, uh, when we're thinking about all the gazillion things that we have to do in our lives, when we feel intense time pressure, um, and and have to get it just right. Uh, those are the kinds of situations that social scientists have, have long demonstrated are when we see the activation of implicit biases that translate into rude and uh, rude behavior and microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And you've studied sort of not just how this happens, but what we can do to yes. intervene. So let's take the example of the, the resident who is you know, faced with a patient or a patient's family who are using, uh, you know, aggressive or belittling 
or frankly racist or misogynist comments directed towards this person? What, what does that person do and, and what can the system do to help them? Sure. Well, I think from the start, the system can do some things to help them through their training. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would imagine if I try to put myself in the shoes of a resident that I might feel if I say something to the patient and confront that patient about their bias and tell them, you know, that's not acceptable language to use toward me. Mm-hmm. I'm here to help you. Um, that I might not feel supported uh, by my my professor, my administrators, um, you know, the, the, the higher ups in the situation would, may not support me. Maybe, um, I'm told to put the patient first. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's the wish of the administration. I think the administration wants their residents to feel very protected and so, and, and able to do their job. Uh, and so if that kind of conversation is part of training, that here are some things that you can say in that context, uh, to to demonstrate that this is not okay, this is not acceptable sort of language to use in this in this environment, and I'm here to help you. Um, then they have kind of that permission. It takes away the fear that they might have about getting into trouble for confronting a patient. And so, with regard to then what they can do in that in that context is. Yeah, confrontation is communicating your displeasure with that comment. And so they can just say, uh, I've, I felt hurt by that comment. Um, that's not a professional. This is a professional setting, and I'm here to offer you help. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't appreciate that. Um, or they can ask a question. You know, is this, is this how you think about, you know, people like me uh, across the board? Or, you know, have I done something to offend you? There are a lot of different things that people can do to call attention to what was just said um, and to to make it known that this is not okay. And in your experience, like the majority of people are not, you know, stone cold racists who are saying these things, right? right? Like that if pointed to reflect, we'll sort of can realize that that's not the right course. Right, right. So even people who hold more explicit or consciously held racial biases tend to be sensitive to norms in the environment. Uh, and so that could probably be a good way to get people to reflect on what the norms are like, that you're in a, in a hospital setting, you're in a clinic setting, this is a professional unit, I'm here to provide you with professional care, I have the qualifications to do that, mm-hmm. you have to let me do that. Right, right. Um, like maybe you didn't realize it, but actually it's not okay right. to say these things exactly. in hospitals. Like exactly. this, this is not a place where that is tolerated. Exactly. So one thing the system can do, right, is present these, like we can go to our trainees and say, look, you have our permission to push back, right? The customer is not always right. Right. You right. know, exactly. like you can you say that this is not okay. You job. do not have to accept abuse as, right. as part of the job. Um, and then the the other role is, you know, for 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 people other than the targeted individual Correct. to step in and work as, as allies. Right. So I'm assuming that in any sort of patient context that it's unusual perhaps for a resident to be completely alone, that there would be other members of a team that are present. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our work has focused on the role of bystanders and, and bystanders intervening in those situations. And um, oftentimes it's more powerful coming from someone who is not the target person themselves because it's surprising. It's more surprising if I call out racial prejudice as a white woman uh, than it is for an African-American person to call out racial prejudice. Yeah. Um, and so I have that, that power, but also a responsibility to care for the people on my team. And by communicating that to the, 
the patient or to their families or whoever the perpetrator of that bias is, I'm helping taking care of, of the resident. Is the ideal interlocutor then like somebody who sort of matches the cohort of the of the person who's like doing the aggression, right? So like it if it's a white man like talking to a, a resident of color or a woman, um, then like I would be the right person to go in and say like this isn't right. But if it's you know, a black woman directing something at a male resident than like finding a black woman who could sort of align with them would be better. I, I don't know. Ideally, yeah. although we often don't have control when those things happen. Right. You can't moment, like right? have a panel yeah. of every like, possible uh, demographic to, uh, intervener, right? To, <laughs> exactly. Page and ally that like <laughs> right. fits this profile perfectly. <laughs> right. But uh, but certainly when, when that match is there, um, then to the extent that the person who is the perpetrator sees you as a, a referent group, mm-hmm. um, then, then that's going to have a greater impact on them. Thanks for taking my long-winded explanation and reducing it to an <laughs> obvious term of referent group. Um, yeah, I think that the my experience, you know, as I've sort of like come up through these hierarchies, right, is like as the senior resident, like I can protect the mm-hmm. intern and I would look to the attending to protect me. As the junior attending, I can protect my residents and I can sort of advocate for them and I can and I have gone to patients and been like, look, you these are your best friends. Like these are the people who are gonna help you here. Right. You have to like be respectful to them and work with them, you know. And I've done that, you know, on behalf of nurses when the patients are being abusive yeah. and whatnot. I mean, like, there are, those, there are those opportunities. And meanwhile, if someone comes to me, then I'm looking to, you know, my division chief or my chair, Absolutely. you know, to yeah. like... And we've done some research recently that, that supports that, that people look to whoever is the designated leader mm-hmm. in that situation. Uh, and so if you have that uh, hierarchical power over someone, then they, they expect, they're looking to you. You're the person in charge. You know, help me out here. What can you do? Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, what we also found in this research is that the people who do hold those positions of, of leadership, even when we experimentally induce that in a laboratory context where the leadership is essentially meaningless, really. Mm-hmm. But in You're that telling moment, one college student they're the leader and the, the other one they're the follower, the right? The yeah. follower, yeah. yeah. So even under those very minimal conditions, having that leadership uh, role um, influences the extent to which people feel responsible for taking care of their group. When you think about how to do it, like the, the language that you use, whether you're the target or an ally, what strategies work best? Well, certainly um, strategies that are supportive of the of the perpetrator, and that they, it gives them a, a sense of you have the cho- you have the choice to change your behavior in this context. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of oddly empowering to them. Um, you are choosing to, to, do, to engage in this, um, in this behavior. You could choose not to. So hmm. that, is, that is one strategy that has, has some demonstrated um, success. In addition, confronting in a less emotionally charged way goes a little farther. Uh, I will say that both charged and less charged confrontations can be equally effective in getting people to change their behavior in the short term. Yeah. But there's more uh, backlash socially when we confront in a more assertive, hostile way, especially if we're targets ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so confronting in a, a less emotionally charged way, confronting in a way that appeals to people's internal or external motivations um, uh, to avoid prejudice responding is more effective than simply calling out someone's bias and saying, hey, that's sexist or that's racist. Um, but speaking to you know, why people would view um, their own standards, they're violating their own standards for behavior or how they're violating uh, the norms in that context is more effective. Can you give an example of like what, what that would look like? Like what's the, if you know, I'm a black resident and a white 
patient has just said, like, I don't want to be taken care of by any black doctors. Like, well, pointing out that here at the, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, we're all part of a team. We're all trained professionals. And so if you want to receive care, uh, then accept that care from trained professionals regardless of who they are. That would be a way that suggests that this is unacceptable in this environment. This is not the norm in this environment. Right. I am part of the system. The system is me. We are here to provide your we, care. We, as the system, are providing your care, and that means you're getting care from me and that's just the way it is right but not in a hostile exactly like how dare you say that to me like what are you some that's kind going of to racist more right pressure. like it's right. going to push push back sure yeah. i guess the other question i have is is what's the best way for allies to help not just alleviate sort of these aggressions but to 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 show the targets that they're supported and i guess like to give a concrete example right if if a resident comes to me and says, you know, Mrs. Smith doesn't want me taking care of her. Um, she only wants white male doctors and I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. Like the, the two ways I could imagine doing that, right, would be going in with the resident and saying like, Mrs. Smith, we need to have a talk about how the system works mm-hmm. versus, and I feel like this often happens, you know, me going in alone to talk to Mrs. Smith and saying, like, look, I hear you had this interaction with our resident, and, you know, I just need you to know that, like, we are a team. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one that has that sort of backroom feel, which I, in my sense, I, like, I, I feel like those conversations are easier, right, if it's like you take the target out of the picture, uh-huh. but then I feel like you leave the target... Disempowered. Disempowered, right? Like, now, like, something's happening in a back room, right. and, like, they are, they may never see the, the downstream consequence or never have the experience of, of seeing someone standing up for them. Right. No, I think in that context, the most authentic thing that you could do would be to, even if it's harder, um, be there with the target mm-hmm. um, and, and explain to the patient that this is, this is how it's going to be. This is, the, this is the team. Um, you know, we're all on this team together. This person has been assigned to your care. Um, and so um, I think they're seeing you do that in that context in a way that is in solidarity with them. It's supporting of them. Um, and and it's modeling behavior for other people who might be present in the room, too. Yeah. Um, that all of that goes a long way in terms of good allyship. And the best case scenario, right, is the perpetrator apologizes to the target, right? Says like, oh, I'm so sorry. That wasn't what I meant to say. Or I didn't realize that that would be offensive. Like I beg your forgiveness. Right. And I feel like that, that's sometimes a big ask. That's probably, that may not be what you get, but the the, the next best step is, you know, at least having that person feel validated by their own team and system. Exactly. Exactly. So hopefully it stops future behavior, you know, at Mm -hmm. the very least, whether, um, uh, whether that person acknowledges it and apologizes in that in that way, I mean that would be that would be wonderful. It doesn't always happen. People might feel very ashamed in that moment and maybe not say something. But um, in in terms of apology, but but it should stop their behavior. Do we know anything about preemption? Like, is there anything we can do to avoid these situations to to sort of preemptively let people know that like we are a facility that won't tolerate this like right I, well certainly on your website you have a, a very powerful institutional statement on diversity not that all people who come here are going to be familiar with that but uh, I assume there's some sort of intake process uh, mm-hmm. where there are a lot of other policies that are gone over with patients when they come in for care um, and I think that that could be a good place for um, for people to communicate the strong norms of the organization um, including respect for all the members of the team 
reassuring people that uh, everyone here um, has sufficient training to do what they are here to do. Mm-hmm. And, and we're all in this together to provide you with the superb care that you deserve. And so that reassurance and that um, kind of statement of norms up front, I think, could go a really long way uh, toward building that. Yeah. And, and then to the extent that a whole team can come in together at the, you know, the very first interaction with a patient and show that they are a cohesive unit and avoid displaying any sort of hierarchical behavior amongst each other would be very powerful for that patient too. Or like creating opportunities in those early interactions for us to elevate like people who we know like have a chance of being a target, right? Right. So if I as the attending come in and the, you know, African-American woman intern is presenting to me and I show deference to her and say like, that's a great presentation. Like, I totally trust you to be the person in charge here, hands, right? Mrs. Like, Smith, you, yeah. Mrs. Smith, like, <laughs> you are you are lucky. You have an awesome doctor mm-hmm. taking care of you. Yes. And she is going to be the person who's going to be in charge. Right. And I'm going to follow her lead. Right. Right. That's powerful. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come here to, to sort of help us understand and put terms and really well-established concepts um, around this issue that I think... You know, I certainly coming in this morning did not feel like I had either the terms or the toolbox to talk about this. And and just having the opportunity to talk with you about it, I think, has really opened my mind. And hopefully, you know, I think everyone in the room took a lot away from it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Next time on The Surgery Set, I speak with UW pediatric plastic surgeon Dr. Catherine Garland. She specializes in the treatments of infants and children, including cleft lip and palate repair, and heads up the surgical side of our vascular anomalies clinic. In what will be part of an ongoing series of discussions about the role of multidisciplinary care, we talk about the many collaborations she has in the clinic and the OR with other medical and surgical specialists. Talk to you soon. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at WiscSurgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.